Well, I'd, just like, I'd like to offer a few closing reflections in terms of the, um, the material we've been practicing with over the last days. As well as speaking a little bit about the wider context of our, of our practice and the way it feed into, can integrate, can influence, can support the rest of our lives, as well as some reflections that you might like to share. I mentioned the other day that the Buddha Buddha speaks about uh, what's traditionally called the three poisons kind of shorthand for all the ways in which clinging, getting up tight and reactive manifests. We spoke about them in terms of the just their manifestations in the heart and their wider manifestations in the world. And those being what, as I say, classically are called greed, hatred and delusion. And, you know, those terms were translated from the Pali probably nearly a hundred years ago now. And like all translations, like all language, you know, language needs to be updated, I think. I recently read a quote from uh, Roland Barthes, he says, all good books ought to be retranslated every 20 years. And I think that's, that's uh, very perceptive. And since the hundred or so years, particularly the last 50 years, that since there's been a kind of serious Western interest in Eastern teachings, often we're still using the same translations that are now one or two or three or four generations out of date, I would say. And you might notice that those of you who kind of study Dharma teachings, those of you who have tried to read kind of more formal Buddhist teachings, you might find, I certainly found, getting bogged down in the language and having to actually retranslate a lot of things for myself. Not... not, um, not to somehow find a better translation, but to find a fit so that I could actually recognize not just the concept. I don't know, I only get the concept of greed and hatred and delusion. But so that I could actually find the fit in my own experience. Finding a way of languaging that which brought it alive. So partly that's an individual uh, pursuit, I think, to reflect on the teachings we receive and to be willing you know, not to cling to the formulations, but to be willing to examine them in a way that really brings them alive so that we recognize them in our own experience. And, and partly it's a, it's a generational pursuit as well. So, in terms of our work, work our, our work with, that we've been doing with recognizing the way we get caught in the grip of getting uptight and reactive around what's happening. Which traditionally 
called clinging. And we look at the affect of that in the heart. Traditional Dharma teachings call that greed, hatred and delusion. But if we think in terms of the affect, I sometimes think of that as what I sometimes call three Ds. Demand, you know, that feeling demanding. The tightening of heart when we explored the whole thing about wanting. You know, the move towards the grip of making some demand on life. It might be something we want, but it can also just be some kind of unconscious insistence that things be a certain way. Some wish for otherness. And might be some very much appropriate wish for things to be different, intention for things to be different, and taking the steps for things to be different in some practical way. But this is pointing really to the, the, the constriction in the heart of feeling, demanding. Demanding or defensive, opposite movement, like pushing away, resisting, being intolerant of what's happening. And again, there may be things that we don't want to tolerate in life, things that we want to make a stand against, things that we want to stand up for, morally, ethically, just in terms of kindness, in terms of the protection for those who need protection, etc., But if the heart is defensive, if there's some pushing away of our experience, then the heart is caught. So it's one way, in terms of just looking at the affect in the heart, of the way uh, these three realms of clinging, these three realms of getting caught, get caught in our demands, our defences, and our distractions. It's going unconscious. And I think looking at them in that way, in terms of their affect, gives us a way to work with them in our practice. This is not to, to do particularly with being on retreat, with formal meditation practice. It's to do with studying where I get demanding, where I get defensive, where I get distracted. There's a lot of opportunity. Sometimes people say, oh, it's wonderful to meditate, but how do I bring this into my life? This is how. Right? Studying what your demands, defences and distractions. The alliteration makes it easy to remember. Three Ds. Otherwise you can have it as three C's. Compulsions, contractions, confusions. One day I'll write an alphabetical dharma book. (laughs) It's important to us, important for us, to find ways that make the translation, not just of the, the terms, 
Well, I think that that's important too. I think that's helpful too. But make the translation of what we're what we're doing here into the re- the whole of our lives. Make that clear. Sometimes we talk about um, you know, spiritual life. Uh, but, oh well, there's my spiritual life. But then, what about my working life and my relationship life, my social life, my this life, that life? Too many lives. artificial kind of uh, divisions we might for the sake of convenience refer to it as this aspect or that aspect my working life, my social life but in the actual participation that's not how it is we participate in life seamlessly indivisibly one moment at a time. And that's how we're invited to meet our practice. Don't draw up some problematic, um, spurious division between this and whatever else you do in life. What we do in life is we sit some, we stand some, we lie down some, we move some. And we go between those different activities. Just like we've been doing here. Sometimes we're quiet, sometimes we're speaking, sometimes we're eating, sometimes we're resting. And there's a way in which we kind of refine the proportions of that here to be a particularly conducive environment. Just like when you go to the gym, if you go to the gym. It's a particular environment for for training the muscles. It's a particular environment for cultivating the capacity for a focused mind, a receptive mind, a sensitive mind, a bright mind, a caring mind. You could substitute the word heart for all of that list as well. But then you don't live in the gym. So both the training of these capacities, that's part of our practice. And then the other part is the applying of these capacities. And then the third part, which is the fruits of these capacities, that takes care of itself. Don't worry about the fruits too much. Don't try and measure the fruits. Don't anticipate the fruits. You will know the fruits. You might not know the fruits by the spectacular quality of your meditation practice. Right? You make, I, probably there's a good bet that your meditation practice will atrophy somewhat when you leave here. And the quality of it. I would encourage you, and I hope, you know, to the extent that you feel the power and beauty of this kind of practice, to that extent you'll commit to some kind of regular practice. If you love meditation, meditate. If you think meditation is a wonderful thing, if you tell others what a good thing meditation is, for goodness sake, meditate. What a tragedy to be a lover of meditation who doesn't actually meditate very much. But... You know, a retreat's kind of a setup. 
It's a setup wherein the silence and the support and the guidance and the field that we participate in together, you know, all of those potentize our practice. When you're sitting alone or maybe in a group that you might meet with for an hour a day or half an hour a day or 20 minutes a day or whatever fits for you and I'd encourage you not to be too ambitious about that don't try and apply this schedule when you get home it may be that mind is more distracted than it was here that there's less steadiness or less clarity than there was in moments here and unfortunately we tend to compare back to our best moment meditation on retreat and then say oh what's happening why isn't it like that we forget there were many moments of spectacularly poor quality meditation practice on the retreat as well right but you know somehow the most important thing about that isn't the quality of your meditation we don't get into this to become good meditators who cares about being a good meditator we get into this for the transformation of our lives. And it's a mystery that's hard to understand, but somehow, if we stick with it in a sincere way, both the cultivating of these qualities and the applying of these qualities in our lives, we notice the fruits. We notice more spaciousness, more ease, more... Um, Capacity to recognize where we are and what's happening. More capacity to respond to others. And that's much more useful as a fruit, as a benefit, than the quality of our meditation. So please, you know, be as sincere as you can about your meditation practice. And give yourself to it as wholeheartedly as you can, for however long you might sit. Better to sit for a short time with real wholeheartedness than to sit for some kind of longer period of time that you prescribe yourself in, in some kind of dull way. There's nothing magic about 45 minutes, just because that's what we sit for here. Don't sit for 45 minutes. Right? unless that actually fits for you. Sit for a period of time that feels more manageable, that feels like you're actually going to commit to it, and it feels like you can sustain the real willingness to be there as wholeheartedly as possible for that time. That'll be different for you. It might be ten minutes, might be five minutes, might be three conscious breaths. I don't mind Rather that you sat with in the, for a short time with with conviction, with real care, with real sincerity, than tried to adhere to some kind of impressive inner ideal around meditation, only to fairly quickly probably get a little disillusioned, disgruntled, dismayed. Three more D's. <laughs>
One of my friends teaches a class that he calls Pragmatic Dharma. That's a good way to approach our practice. Pragmatically. And so these, these uh, the deepening fruits of our practice, you know, they show up basically as a freer and freer heart. More space for our life. More sensitivity to life. More love in our life. Buddha talks about, um, and it's a, it's a teaching that's often quite misunderstood, I think. He talks in lots of different ways about the fruits of this practice as freedom of heart. And particularly speaking about the, the four boundless qualities of heart, the, the, which we could, if I was to freely translate, I might call the four. Um, natural conditions of heart the four resting places the orientations that our heart actually naturally starts to rest in more and more when it's uncluttered by clinging by self-obsession by being stuck in wanting by producing lots of views as those things thin out Which means as we get less reactive to them, as we get more skillful at accommodating and understanding wanting, accommodating and understanding the way our views get formed without getting so stuck on them. In the resulting spaciousness, our heart tends to kind of rest according to the situation in in these four different expressions. We might call them four different flavours of love or refractions of love. Love's a little bit of a difficult word. It's got a lot of uh, association. Some of them are a little bit, um, a little bit sugary, you know. Too many rom-coms and greeting cards. Valentine associations. Love is reduced, unfortunately, usually in our in our kind of in our culture, to romantic love, beautiful though that is, as the only really visible expression. And because there's something so beautiful about love, all our all our sense of love, our interest in love, our yearning for love, our recognition for love. Just culturally, it all gets channeled towards the kind of idealizing of romantic love. But these qualities of the way the heart can rest in love, I think, are just worthy of um, evoking, exploring. So, as we learn to recognize them as that. So those of you familiar with the, with that teaching, you know, metta karuna, mudita upeka, in the Pali words, they have, for most part, some very clumsy old, out of date translations. None of which I really like. Loving kindness. 
Compassion, that's, that's kind of okay. But there's a lot of mix-up. You know, how often you might notice for yourself, if you're established in this kind of practice, or you might hear others, or I read in books, or I hear all kinds of loving-kindness and compassion. Running them together like they're the same thing. So I'd like to explore a little bit these, these flavors. So-called loving-kindness, so-called compassion. It's okay. Mudita. Sympathetic joy. And upeka, translated as equanimity, which I'm more or less equanimous about. (laughs) And I think the best way to understand these, these qualities of heart isn't so much in terms of those translations or really even any others, but in terms of their affect in the heart. I like to. I think of metta of loving kindness as the as the caring aspect, the caring refraction, the quality of love that cares. Care, I would think, is actually a, a good translation. And the affect in the heart is one of warmth. Right? That's how you recognize metta. Loving kindness. The term doesn't really speak to me about anything. But the warmth in the heart, that I can recognize. There's a kind of radiant quality to it. That's how the Buddha speaks about metta, as radiating out from the heart. That a sense of goodwill, of caring, a sense of kind of friendliness, of well-wishing. But how we actually experience it as, is as a radiant warmth. And that's one of the places that we'd get more and more familiar with in our hearts as things free up. When there's, when there's someone that evoke, when there's something or someone or some situation that needs caring or that evokes care, then that's how the heart responds. Rather than with a lot of me stuff or a lot of what do I, should I do stuff. With a kind of radiant warmth. Sometimes that's not not what's happening. Sometimes we're confronted by um, tragedy, by pain, by suffering. Suffering of another or the suffering of our our own hearts and minds and bodies. And that's when the heart naturally rests in karuna, often called compassion. And that's why it's, it's a little confusing when loving kindness and compassion are run together as if they're the same or almost the same thing. The affect in the heart of compassion is very, very different. The affect of compassion in the heart is pain. It's painful. It's painful to be confronted with suffering. Irrespective of where that's arising, whether it's one's own or someone else's. You know, when you see somebody suffer, whether you see that happening in front of you or whether you see that on the TV or whether you read about that in the newspaper or whether you hear about it, whether it's somebody near or far, whether it's within or outside, that's the, the, as the heart gets freer, it has more capacity 
to just to hold pain, to feel pain, to respond to pain. When there's not that freedom, we tend to just shut down around what's painful. We distract ourselves from it, or we defend against it, or we rationalise it away in some way. When we're confronted with the pain that's inherent in, in life, there's something important, something honest, something authentic, something actually free about letting our heart feel that pain and respond to it in whatever way might be needed. And there's much more capacity to make a skillful response to pain when we're not defending and distracting and trying to avoid it. And sometimes that's not what's uh, happening. Sometimes there's beautiful delightful, exquisite expressions of life that we're in touch with. Beauty. And beauty of nature that some of you have referred to. And beauty of other human beings. The beauty in its all its uh, multitudinous facets and expressions. And when the heart's free enough that we can see that, right? there's beauty all around us. There's a, a huge amount of, of depth of beauty in life to appreciate, to be in awe and wonder of. But when the heart's constricted with all that me and my and what I want and what I've got to do and what I, my issues and problems are, <coughs> it's very hard. There's not much room for access to that kind of, uh, to being touched in that way. When the heart is free, then the response to beauty is naturally to delight in it, to appreciate it. And so if metta is the love that cares, and and karuna, compassion, is the love that responds to pain, Mudita really is the, that expression of love that appreciates. And the affect in the heart is one of a kind of delight. A kind of uh, 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 yeah, delight. You might, you might find a different word. I would encourage you, you know, don't take my terms any more than I've been a bit unwilling to take other people's terms, right? It's not important what terms we use, but to find those qualities, to uh, orientate to those qualities, to allow those qualities, which becomes being able to magnify those qualities. The capacity to take delight in beauty. Whether that's artistic beauty, physical beauty, natural beauty, Musical beauty. Let your heart rest in appreciation. And in whatever the heart's confronted with, in contact with, as we've been noticing through these weeks, 
the, the ceaseless, rhythmic, changing experience that we have. Sometimes beautiful, sometimes difficult, sometimes clear, sometimes confusing. The quality of upeka, equanimity, I I think of as, I I recognize as the heart's capacity to allow, to make room for. Equanimity, the word, sounds a little bit like something, it sounds to me at least, like something a bit flat. Like, oh, I don't get excited anymore. I don't get, uh, don't don't go up and I don't go down. The middle way. That's called the mediocre way, not the middle way. Some kind of flat, hello. But the heart isn't like that. The heart of Upeka. The heart that's vast and allowing has room for that which we like and has room for that which we don't like. Has room to go up to great heights. Has room, has the willingness to feel deeply into the depths or the darkness. Vast enough free enough to not get destabilized by those ups and downs, those movements that are inherent in life. That kind of, that we spoke of as a conviction of heart, that stability of heart, that trust in our hearts to be able to stay steady, to stay open, to stay inclusive, to stay allowing regardless of what's passing through. One way we might see our practice is as a training in that kind of capacity. So this is Jack Cornfield's famous book, calls this A Path with Heart. I wanted to make some reference to the ways in which our heart opens. And in such a way that we we start, we continue to actually recognize these features of our heart. Its warmth, its width, its depth its capacity to feel, its capacity to respond more and more fully, more and more fluidly, more and more freely. So, I wish these fruits for all of us here for all of us everywhere. Maybe we can just make a little space for any reflections you might have that you might wish to add.
anything that, you know, I said I'd speak a little bit about the transition into the rest of our life, and I have in some ways in covering that, although uh, there might be more specific questions you have about your Dharma practice or some of the other elements of the way this fits into your life. So if that's the case, please use this opportunity to explore that. Yeah. No, there's plenty of room for self-discipline. And I, I hope I didn't say, I don't think I said only sit there when you feel like it. Oh no. Oh no. Like you say, if you only sit there when you feel like it, floppy practice. And also you miss the greatest opportunities, which are the, the, times, the times where you most feel like you don't want to sit. Hello. They're the times when you're best served by taking yourself to the cushion. So um, what, I, what I was, was pointing to in, in, in that was, was the fact that there's, we can easily get overly idealistic about our practice and then in a way that there's just too much forcing and that tends to give up, lead to a, a giving up after some time. So I, th- I would say very helpful to have a clear sense of some kind of self-discipline, but it needs to be a gentle discipline rather than some kind of rigid. We, lo- most of us tend to be too hard on ourselves. So, you know, you might say, no, I'm really going to commit to sitting. I'm going to commit to sitting every day. And then you might think, oh, that's a bit gung-ho. Maybe I'll give myself a day off. I'm going to commit to sitting at least five days a week. Hmm. And I say, well, that, that doesn't sound good enough. That sounds a bit... Un- oh. But at least, it doesn't mean you can't sit the other two days. But there's some kind of room for, your, room for you in there. And then you might say, I'm going to, when I sit, I'm going to sit for at least 40 minutes. And then you recognize, oh, that's a bit gung-ho too. Right? I can recognize, oh, 40 minutes. It might be. For some, that's fine. For some, it's just I'm going to sit every day for an hour in the morning. Boom. And we do. But for others, when it's more difficult, then give yourself a bit of leeway. It's better to set the bar low and consistently make it. And then you engender a feeling of really aligning yourself with what what you find important. Rather than setting the bar too high and then consistently failing and engendering a sense of, oh, I'm not aligning myself with what I find important. And, oh, I want to have a practice, but I don't make it. So, better to, to... find, oh, I'm going to really commit to sitting for 15 minutes every day, or at least five days a week. And then to actually really, and once you make a commitment in that way, then have the self-discipline. Sit down, whatever happens. And if you find that you've committed to doing that, and, uh, oh, you've gotten through all the day, and you haven't managed to sit there, then make sure you find 15 minutes before you go to bed. So as you keep, keep that thread. You know? But in a way that feels manageable rather than... Uh, too idealistic. Yeah. yeah. Hi, it's, it's Karis here. Yeah. I just really wanted to kind of um, expand on that as someone who actually um, my competition is really difficult. I've never had amazing experiences. Just keeping my breath really, really difficult. 
And over the last two and a half years, I've generally practiced every day for about 15 minutes. And I'm, I'm quite gentle, you know, I do miss occasionally, but generally speaking, I do it. And it's made quite a subtle difference for my life, you can tell. And just recently, though, um, my life's changed quite a bit, and I was terribly anxious. I got in a real state, and I really was getting terrible. I was scared the other day, and getting to feel like I couldn't cope. And there was a time when I was away, and I didn't practice. And nearly a week had gone past, and I, I was able to practice again, and I sat. And it's literally only 15 minutes, usual, not particularly very well. And what a difference that day. Oh, it's amazing. It really, really showed up how amazingly effective sitting is. I was just much calmer. I was walking. Oh, it was, oh, it was just such a relief. So I just wanted to share that so that as an inspiration that it really is worth, you know, even at 15 minutes a day, because, you know, I, I know, I know truly deeply what that experience means. Mm. Mm, thank you. Well, if they're very interested, they probably don't need much encouragement. And if they're not interested, <laughs> the encouragement won't work. It would have to be kind of some kind of you know forcing, and that's not going to do the trick. So there are. Um, how old is your daughter? Who you think? Okay. So there, are, I think there's some books. I have a friend in the states who who kind of specialises in teaching meditation to kids, and I'm I'm sure there's some books about that and ways to kind of gently introduce her in that way. Um, there's some things you can do, like just at family meal times, for example. One thing we do is we just sit quietly for a minute before we eat. You know, in the bustle of you know whatever we've been doing and uh, preparing food, and then it comes to the table and oh, just sitting quiet together, together. It doesn't have to be presented as meditation in any way, but just giving your children an opportunity to somehow come to some kind of quietitude, momentary quietitude, something reflective, something that points them inward. And often, what we do in in conjunction with that is just taking a moment to check in how how we're we all doing, what's going on that day. And again, without calling it anything particular, it's, it's, it gives children an opportunity to actually develop the skills of some kind of self-reflective awareness. Oh, how am I doing? Some people go through their whole lives, never really stopping to ask themselves, what's happening in here? Right? It's just one reaction after another. So I think you can kind of inculcate in your children the things, the kind of the basic orientation of meditation, which is to, to, to kind of to be more self-aware, to plug into oneself, to kind of recognise that we have a capacity to look and see and give space to what's happening. And you can do that in ways that children can connect with it may be more easily than the formality of, OK, kids, now we're going to meditate. <laughs> you know? To which they, may, which, you know, they may respond well to. But uh, mostly not. Yeah. Okay. 
set a precedent because <laughs> we might be here all day but Even though I didn't want to, and I'd, I'd rather rant, 
Ano, ali, ali govet. Molimo za omog vjetrnost, ona, 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 softnost. And I know when I go home, it's, it's, it's stuck and soft. It's probably going to be a bit more like a calf rock than a say about the recognition of that moving and changing as you go home and you know not not needing to impose the need for the heart to feel open you know but allowing the fluidity letting you know it's it's kind of funny but it's beautiful that image of your heart as a cat flap you know? <laughs> and so you know that it might feel open or might feel restricted in accordance with what's happening and what's alive for you and just to be, to be kind of tolerant and spacious with that process, rather than imposing. Oh, my sh- my heart should be open, because then already in the need for it to be open, there's the rigidity that that gets in the way of that. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's, it works so differently for different people in different ways, but certainly great art, we might say, like you're saying, in whatever media, it evokes some kind of response for our, from us that's a mysterious one, that it's, it's some kind of uh, evo- yeah, evocation. It's like we feel drawn into something deeper or bigger or freer or more mysterious than ourselves. And that's certainly one of the more kind of transcendent functions that art has. Yeah. Not all, I wouldn't put all art in that category, but that's why I think it's important to qualify it with. But you know, different people would have different views of what great art is. Well, the minor, that's something you work up, but they might draw on different responses in certain things, different Yeah. And you know, traditionally through history, art has been an expression. Of, of in our life, it's it's uh, it's very recently that there's a kind of uh, there's more of a split around that. But uh, in most cultures, and, and including Western culture, the the sense of a kind of um, inner exploration, the practice of inner exploration, was what gave rise to artistic expression. 
and so I don't want to get into too much of that but yeah Kabuki much more from listening to what your, your reaction to it. You don't need much energy for thinking about what you're going to say in return. Like a tiny amount. 5% more than enough. And to the, the vast majority of your attention, and it's kind of counterintuitive we think to be able to interact out there, I somehow need to have all my attention and energy out there. But actually, if we can actually really tune into what's happening here, the space that that creates means there's more enough than enough space to be able to see much more clearly what's happening out there and how to respond to it and what's happening that's going to otherwise just be a reaction. So that, that capacity to tune in viscerally, you know, your, what's happening in your body is by far the most reliable way to understand what's happening in a situation. Yeah. I have one teacher who, after about 10 or 12 years of practice, she decided to just um, kind of start again. And she, did, she spent five years just doing mindfulness of body. And then five years doing mindfulness of feelings. And then five years doing mindfulness of thought. As a way to really well establish the foundation of each one and build upon the other. So I think of that sometimes when in the course of a retreat we go, okay, today is mindfulness of body and tomorrow. So there's, there's, there's uh, well, there, actually there's no limit to the depth to which we can keep on refining and establishing and, and expanding into what it means to just to be present in, in body. Yeah. Yes. I'm just going to stop you, Pip, because we're going a little bit into the realms of the speculative, which I'm, I would like to avoid. Okay. You know, the, the sometimes when some people do something, oh. it's it's hard to. Oh, Yes. So there's there's a simple practical thing of maybe you know 
seeing when you just need to say no to other people's demands. And for some people that's very, very difficult. Right? We feel kind of unable and there's all kinds of psychological layering for why we feel unable to say no. So, so daring to say no when there's, if there's too many demands on you and seeing what might be in the way of saying no, seeing what kind of underlying assumptions and fears and insecurities uh, might be in the, in the way of that. And in terms of the way you just inhabit yourself, you know, again, like we were just saying in a way, let your attention come back. If, you, if you're inhabiting what's happening here fully enough, so that whatever demands others are making, it's, it's their stuff, it's their demands, it's their loop. And if you're, if you're well established here, you'll have a much better chance of seeing what actually requires or it evokes or really needs a response from you and what doesn't. And when you know what doesn't, it's easier to say no to it. Mm. I'm just trying to... I know a lot of you want to... Okay, yeah. Um, Chris and Christopher. Um, thank you for talking about compassion, because that was, I was thinking about that earlier on. Compassion and loving kindness. Um, I'm just thinking in, in my life I have the opportunity of working with people and uh, feeling compassion, having feelings of compassion that are helpful to me. Also think having compassion towards myself, of course. Uh, the, the question is that in some practices uh, that I've encountered, some teacher, teachers, you can alternate between thinking of the breath, mind and breath, and having compassion first yourself and then mm. for the other people in the room mm. and then for the whole of society whatever. Mm. Um, so we've not followed that with you and I wonder if you could explain a little bit your yeah. around that yeah. so some some people it's teach in that way, it's true. And some people, some, many of you are familiar with those kind of formal meta-practices where one orientates the heart consciously towards cultivating a sense of warmth or care uh, towards oneself, towards specific others, towards general others, etc. And people find a great deal of benefit in that kind of practice. So I have nothing against it, but I've never, it's, I've never been interested in it. It's never really worked for me. I always found it a little contrived myself. And I didn't like to separate the quality of care out as, this, as a different practice. So I try to emphasize, it's always been an emphasis in my own practice, and I try to emphasize when I teach, that the quality of care is inherent in the way we pay attention. Right? So speaking about a caring attention to what's happening, a gentle attention, an allowing attention. So that those qualities of heart aren't presented or practiced as if they're in a vacuum. You know? Oh, I'll do awareness practice, and then I'll do some meta practice. Better to practice a meta. Oh, better it's, it seems to me to teach to practice a metaphor awareness, you know, a, a caring attention. And in fact, although even though I, we might use the word awareness more 
talked about talk about these qualities of contact and curiosity and care as being the qualities of awareness. Those equally sound like a pretty good definition of, of love, actually. Love connects, love's curious, wants, moves closer, and loves caring. And so one could equally, but because of the, like I was just saying earlier about the associations, love, the word love has, it, it might be a little strange to say, okay, we'll just love the breath. It's kind of, it, it has this sort of sugary association. But actually, what we're invited to do is to love what's happening. Meaning to allow what's happening, to care for what's happening, to respond to what's happening. And so those qualities in that way are, are inherent. So I don't see it as leaving that out. I see it rather as, as not separating them out into separate aspects. But having said that, if you or others I know have practiced in that way with metta as a formal practice and find it helpful, I know lots of people find it very, very helpful. So it's not to be dismissive of that in any way. Yeah, Nick. Nick, is it Nick? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, my question is perhaps related to that. It's about teachers. I've, this is my second week where we've both been with you. Mm. And um, they've both been fantastic and the teaching has been wonderful. Thank you. Um, and I suppose my question is, would you... Would you all, would you recommend, if I go on other retreats and they're not with you, perhaps they're here or perhaps elsewhere, is that a sensible thing to do or is that going to lead to confusion? That'll lead to confusion. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a good thing to, to, you know, to expose myself to a lot of different things or could that lead to me getting a bit muddled? It It could. I mean, I think there's only one way to find out. Right. Um, it's different for different people. Some will say, you should just do one thing. And uh, there's this analogy of just digging one deep hole. <laughs> Might feel like we spent decades digging ourselves a deep hole, but you know, you one deep rather than lots of little shallow holes. That's sometimes the analogy that's used. But um, I think for, for some people, doing one thing with one approach, with one kind of f- contextual framework for it, is very, very helpful. And they f- you find if you start reading books from different traditions or going to see lots of different teachers, inevitably teachings will conflict and contradict each other. Even if they don't contradict in their essence, like Ajahn Chah, then go left or go right. So you come here and I say go left, then you go to see someone else, they say go right. Yeah. So for some, that, that is confusing, and the confusion is kind of destabilizing for one's practice. So it might be helpful to just stay simple with that. And if you find something seems to be, or someone seems to be really helpful and it works, just it might be more helpful to stick with that. And for others, um, just doing one thing actually can contribute to getting rigid and falling into the delusion that this way that I practice is the best way because it works for me. Or this person I practice with is, you know, and, uh, and in that case, it actually can be very, very helpful to have the wider exposure and the understanding the deeper, that deepens that nobody's got a monopoly on the truth. Right? No teacher, no teaching, no particular practice, no technique. So you have to just see for yourself what suits you in that way. You know? 
and whether you, if the capacity is there to kind of discern the truthfulness among the different contexts and frameworks. And if it is, good. And if it's not, that's okay. You know? And if you, if you, in other environments or with other people or in other teachings, if you, if you really connect with it, doesn't mean you have to reject what else you've done. And if you don't connect with it, doesn't mean you need to reject what's happening there. All it means is that you haven't connected with it, if that's the case. doesn't mean anything about whether the teacher or the teaching is right or wrong or good or bad. So I think that's a really helpful way to approach that, is to, to kind of leave your views at the door, as we were saying the other night. Right? And just see if it, if it speaks to you or not. And not need to make any kind of overarching conclusions about it other than that. Yes. Beautiful. And the, the, even though it was difficult, like you say, the daring to kind of name that is part of the, of the, of the being freer from it. Right? That, oh yeah, this is, this is what I've noticed in my mind, rather than the, the belief that this is who or how I am. So I'm really glad that you feel able to, to name it. Thank you. Um, the word enlightenment seems to me, certainly in my experience, quite off-putting. And I've come to see that actually I feel it's a total continuum mm. at the moment of um, self-reflection and humility, normally from some sort of collision or you know, problem in your life. And you see something about yourself, that's a bit of enlightenment, as I see it. And then, like you say, so it can be a problematic term to use. And I think a lot of what's going on and from uh, a lot of what people have just been saying and certainly my experience. Some of what you're talking about and translations and other word language, self-healing. Because I feel that meditation and, and, and what retreats uh, are going on now
Okay, how are we doing? Just maybe one or two more and then we should stop. Uh, yeah, Lorna and Penny and Claire. Okay. Um, when you were talking about um, retreat is like the gym, mm. uh, what's your view on doing retreat for a longer time? Bigger muscles. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like any analogy or metaphor, it, it uh, you know it has its limits. So some do live, you know, in this case, some do live their life in the gym, as it were. Um, so what I think. And yeah. Like I think one has to, see, you know, d- different things are appro- different expressions are appropriate for different people, and different expressions are, di- are appropriate at different times. So some of us might feel that kind of uh, calling to practice in a very deep way, in a in a very kind of uh, in a context that's very all inclusive and where there's a full support structure for that. And that might look like a monastic life, or it might look like you know increasingly. I mean, the monastic life is what was available for that kind of all all inclusive context for practice. And now there, there are other there are other ways that one can be just as much immersed in a, in Dharma practice, even in a formal way. So, if people feel drawn to any of those really immersive forms, wonderful. And some find that out of that immersive form, the immersive form itself has a kind of a, a sustaining and a nourishing, and there's no need to look beyond that. And that might be a monastic life or a very long term in retreat. There's people here that have been here for a year or so. You know, a couple of people in the past who have been here for three years at a stretch. And for others, um, never feel the need for that kind of immersive form. In fact, feel horrified at the idea of that kind of immersive form. And for others, there's both. You know, that it might feel very deep and beautiful and nourishing and important and transformative. 
and then it comes to an end that kind of way of practicing and one feels uh, similar the, the need not in a distractive way or in a giving up way but in a, in a completely appropriate way to practice in a very different more uh, kind of context some people stay as monks or nuns for years 10 years, 15 years, 20 years and then they just get to the end of that and they feel not in a reactive way not in a giving up way that oh, now it's time, for, it's time for a different expression. So I don't think any of those expressions are better or worse. I don't have a view about what one should or shouldn't. But uh, you know, see, what you're, see what the heart's drawn to. And you know, the more sincerely we meet whatever it is we're drawn to, the more benefit there'll be there. Hmm. Penny. Um, something I want to share with the group, but um, uh, just to say first, I'm really, I was really pleased that you're translating Muditara's uh, delight mm-hmm. uh, because that was the name of my boat, um, and I wasn't sure what to call it. And a friend suggested that, and I thought, uh, but it just, uh, just as I was on the, the point of. of, of I was looking at it from across the weirs and it's a, a, it's a beautiful location pond, across the pond and I really did feel that delight mm. and uh, so, so sometimes when people would ask me what, what does it mean you know, I'd say, but when I was travelling around the waterways I'd say delight mm-hmm. so, um, and just to say that um, purely coincidentally and it, it, it's on a retreat that I did about four years ago with um, Joseph and Carol Wilson, uh, Joseph Golski and Carol Wilson. Um, I took up a practice that Carol recommended, um, and she she said it. She called it gratitude practice, and it involved uh, for her emailing with a friend. They decided to email each other with what they were grateful for every day. And uh, some days it would be like, oh, I can't think of anything today. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I, I persuaded a friend and it didn't quite work out. Some days we, you know, it, it, maybe it was once a week and then we sort of, uh, you know, it fell by myself. So I just carried it on by myself, writing a few lines in, um, in my diary. So instead of doing a diary for the day, I just write, you know, things to be grateful for. And so I've been doing this for like four years and I stopped it when I came on, you know, I've been stopping it, I have it stopping it when I've come on the tree. But actually I've taken it up again recently um, and I've been on retreat for, for some months now and um, it's made a fantastic difference and I, I think I've connected with the difference it's made while I've been on retreat <coughs> in a way maybe that I wouldn't have noticed. Um, it, it, it's given me sort of um, uh, a line to, to, to joy and to generosity. Um, and, uh, you know, just that facility for, for appreciation. So just writing, like, you know, maybe four lines or a couple of things that you appreciate down every day, I really, really recommend that. Mm, yes, thank you. Claire? Um, I, uh, I'm not really scared to talk. Um, I... I think I feel very self-indulgent by saying this, um, but I feel like 
if I think I feel like I started crying yesterday and I did some dread storm. <laughs> and um, I've been really trying to stay with it and think about um, what it might be about. Um, and some of it feels like it's weird before I came, I felt really scared to come because I've never been silent in my life. All my friends said, um, ha ha, you know, you'll never be able to be quiet for more than 30 seconds. And actually, I've loved it, I've really loved it. Um, well, I live on my own, but it's something, I think it's something that I feel quite scared about going back. It's like I was scared to come here and now I feel scared to go back. Because it feels so amazing to feel so supported by everybody. And, um, so moved by everybody, really, and how hard we try. We are all trying, and how hard we work, and uh, I don't really know what I'm trying to say. I, I, I think I've, I just feel like I'm, I don't know, I want some advice or something on how to go back. Before I came, I was waking up in the morning and just feeling so anxious about everything. Uh, to the point I think I made myself quite ill and um, and maybe because I've just been silent and perhaps I just needed to say this. <laughs> um, I just thought I felt scared. Mm. <clears throat> and I wondered if you had some advice on I don't Well, it sounds like that whole thread and theme of support, aloneness and others and support is, is, is very alive for you, right? And something that's really moving you in terms of feeling that sense of contact and support. So I'd, I'd encourage you to stay alive to that, right? to the sense of support that so moves you when you feel it in this configuration but that's that's can be alive in lots of different configurations right you might be sitting on the train on the way home feel the support even if it's the train seat holding you up it's a way in which it's a, it's a it's all the forms of support that we experience or feel touched by uh, uh, symbols, if you like, or representations of the essential support of the way life supports our being. Look, it just breathes by itself. It moves. It feels. It's like we couldn't be more supported. So, that's one thread I think you can follow, is letting yourself feel for support look for support notice the support that's already there and you might want to reflect on ways in which you want to really align yourself with that kind of support particularly if you live on your own right? and friends might be some kind of support but it's, if there's something in this that really feels important you, then looking for the kind of support of people that can reflect this back to you is also really, really helpful. Yes, I have good friends, really good friends in my life. I'm, I'm very lucky. It's mm-hmm. just, I think it's that sense of, I don't know, you understand. Yeah, so yeah. friends is one thing, and sangha is another. 
I would say Sangha is the, the means the sense of the uh, community of practice. So at this uh, you know, unfortunately named book sales <laughs> period, there'll be all kinds of stuff around that. And you know, it's sometimes it's like we see the value of the of the practice bit, but the sangha, it's like well, I've got my own friends, thanks. You know? But there's something inestimably valuable and rich and kind of soothing somehow in being in contact with people that actually share the same kind of aspirations and understanding of what it is you're trying to do. And I would say go careful with your friends. If you feel like they wouldn't understand, don't try and make them understand too much. It's painful to actually share what feels most, so precious and important to us with people that might be dismissive or uh, ununderstanding of it. Or, uh, oh, look what's happened to Claire. So, I had a friend who, who, uh, when he started practice, would get very excited about it. And when people would say, "Oh, what have you been doing?" He'd go into great detail, you know, kind of laying the Buddha's wisdom on them. <laughs> And he found that uh, they didn't really, <laughs> it wasn't very satisfying for him. And that often people weren't actually, you know, they'd say, like when they say, oh, how are you? But people aren't really interested. They don't really want you to tell them how they are. It took me a while to get that. Yeah. I've been doing lots of practice. And when I came back from Asia, you know, get used to having all these kind of deep chai shop conversations yeah. with other people in the, doing the same thing and then people would say how are you I'd say well <laughs> <laughs> and so he refined a short form answer and people would say you know, well, what's all this retreat stuff you've been doing he said it's happiness training mm-hmm. I just, I've been doing happiness training and it seems to be working <laughs> And then you can see if, if people are actually interested, they'll, you'll, you'll, you'll get that. But otherwise, important not to disperse too much of your own, of what feels so precious. You know, to share that with people who can share it with you. Okay. Last one, Avi. Thanks, Renee. just brings me back to when I went to Plum Village, which is Dishnat Han's uh, retreat centre. It's near Bordeaux. So the friends that I shared that I went on a retreat with, I told them all about how beautiful the retreat was. But the friends that, that don't relate to going on a retreat, they found out it was near Bordeaux. So they thought I was on a wine. <laughs> <laughs> so they were asking for the cases of wine when I came back. So yes, it is how you will relate to your friends. Right. But uh, there's a wonderful <clears throat> sound that uh, when I'm in London I go to. And that is, is just wonderful because I find that when I am in a group, it really encourages me to sit rather than when I'm by myself. So if you're on your assignment, then, then definitely uh, try and connect with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, friends. So I just want uh, to appreciate you all a little bit as we come to the end. It's, uh, I said last night, but uh, it's really uh, been very rich for me to to 
engage with you in in the goodness of your practice, in the sincerity of it, in the the willingness to really face what's happening and to speak it out loud as well in those moments of exploring together and the courage and the um, realness with which many of you have dared to speak and expose and explore what's happening. And uh, thank you for the for your support in the dana that you've offered me and the guy house coordinators. And I want to wish you well. Um, I haven't gotten into my dharma propaganda stuff, I realise, but there's plenty of that on the board. So I'd be happy to see you again here or there or elsewhere. Okay. Go well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.